Hi, and welcome to another episode of Shining in the Gray. This is your host, Vanessa Rivera. In today's episode, I get to talk to Chris Hewerts. Chris is an Enneagram teacher, he is a writer, and he's co-founder of Gravity alongside his wife, Felina, who I absolutely love, by the way. And Chris was such a good sport. We went from talking about quarantine to his new book, to Netflix, to religion. It is a really fun conversation. I'm grateful to Chris for having had it with me, and I'm grateful to you for listening along. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I have to tell you that when I invited you to be on the podcast, I had my little, my computer open to your request screen mm-hmm. on gravity all day, completely filled out, having a complete existential crisis about whether or not I should click send because all of a sudden you weren't just Chris who I talked to, you were like the Chris the author Enneagram teacher, Chris. And I was like, <gasps> and all of a sudden it was like, yes, I swear to God. And I, I called, I called up, um, Mike at, at work. I'm like, babe, um, I need you to talk me down off this ledge because all of a sudden I have created something that doesn't exist. She's like, can you just press send? I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, I can do that <laughs> because all of a sudden, you know, you became a celebrity, Chris infamous you it well and yeah but you're like an enneagram celebrity oh man you how do what is that like because you're like you are now for our kind of generation you are the richard roar you are the you are all of these people for us like you're that new generation oh no i here's the thing i i understand that um some of my work has become visible, but like visibility of work doesn't make somebody more of an expert or offer more credibility to who they are. So I'm, I think what's great is um, I'm still the same little shit that I've always been. <laughs> like the but, bummer is like, if it disappoints people to find out that I'm human, like, sorry, that's a bummer. But hopefully that's actually the upside of it. It's like if there is some visibility around some of my work and it actually shows people you can you can just be yourself and be human. Awesome. So yes, all of that. And I think that within the realm of Enneagram and within the realm of like self-actualization and all of that, um there 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 does have to be voices that start to come up above the noise and yours is one of them Mm. you know and i don't know that that necessarily makes uh it doesn't make it that other voices are not important you know and i and i i I respect how humble you are about that but it does say that something about the way that you're bringing forth your knowledge is resonating what what is it that happened in you that you decided that not only did you want to start learning all of this but you also wanted to put your hat you know throw your hat in the Mm -hmm. game so to speak and start teaching um 
so let me come let me let me try to circle that like um number one i i I will say this i think part of why some of my work is durable and has become visible is is because i think there's there's this kind of push-pull tension in it so i am trying to push this conversation forward right Mm -hmm. there's a conversation that started 50 years ago around the Enneagram of Personality. A handful of folks wrote the, the ovarial and seminal books on types. And then that has just been regurgitated for, for 30 some years. And so a few years ago, yes, it's like, all right, great. I know my type. I've read all the type descriptions, fabulous. Now what, what do we do with it? And I think that was, I don't know why, super innovative. Like, I don't know why taking something off the page and like practicing and putting it in life and then moving, letting life take its momentum. I don't know why that was revolutionary. And it reminds me, it reminds me, um, you know, 20 years ago, I was part of this group of theologians, clergy members, and intentional community leaders. And we worked with this ethicist on a project, a three-year project, trying to come up with what are the marks that historically have made and broken religious community. And so we looked back 2000 years of, of church history and we came up with four things promise keeping truth telling gratitude and hospitality and this academic this theologian that actually packaged this and put it in a book and then put that book out in the world and applied it she was revolutionary it was like oh wait all these graduate school professors aren't actually practicing the things that they said and it's like duh like why wouldn't we live authentically honestly well I think that's what I tried to do with Sacred Enneagram and that work. So like I said, on one hand, there's a pushing forward, but with this new stuff that's coming out, the Enneagram of belonging, it's a reaching back. And this reach back is this. If there is this proliferation of mugs and memes, Enneagram cultures, and you know, I kind of joke around like, while we've been talking, there's probably been nine new Enneagram Instagram accounts opened. These folks don't even really know what they're working with. Like, they don't even know the four basic building blocks of the personality system as these four Enneagons that Oscar Chasa leaked. And so I think this push-pull, like this, this pushing forward and this reaching back, I think it's actually corrective. And I actually think that's why it's so helpful because for the pros and the experts and the Ennea nerds, yes, we want to reach forward. And then for everybody who's Ennea curious or Ennea lucky or a digital influencer and maybe isn't, completely dialed in or hasn't had good training. I'm also just saying, hey, let's let's get the basics right. Let's relanguage it and also make them practical and purposeful. And so I, I do see this as a unique contribution. Um, I don't know why it's so interesting to people, but. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you why it was interesting to me. When I read the Sacred Enneagram, I, in my usual mindset is all of a sudden I'm really excited about something and I'm just going to dig deep into every single thing I find until I have lost interest and then I move on to the next thing. And I was almost there with the Enneagram until I picked up Sacred Enneagram. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it, it's when the, 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 the tide turned for me and it, this wasn't just about personality. This was more than just this list of traits that really resonate with me. And so it was, I I believe that 
perhaps that's what's happened with so many people and how, why they resonate with you is because like you said, not only did you make it applicable, like something to live out, but you also started bringing in a little bit of the esoteric type of stuff to just spark enough curiosity in people who I think were ready to keep going and to learn more and to dig a little bit deeper. Is it possible that because we only know four of like the 108 Enneagons, you know, or at least, I mean, I don't know, for all I know, you know, all 108 of them. And then we might have to talk about that in a secret, like <laughs> fire pit type of thing. But like, is it because we, we only have avail that available to us that maybe some of us aren't able to dig deeper? Does that make sense? Mm. Are you kind of following yeah. a little bit where yeah. my um, brain's going? So I will say this. I think I've, I have chased down so much of this obscure and lost um, material that the Arican Institute has kind of hidden. Um, and of course, some of these things the Arikans sign contracts and you know, they, they promise never to share any of it. And when they die, they return it to the school. And somehow I found some of these things at used bookstores. So it feels kind of like secret knowledge that nobody should actually have. But I <laughs> think I've actually seen around 60 or 70 of those different Enneagons. Um, I think the ones that Ichaso shared with Naranjo in Chile and the ones that Naranjo actually work the personality system out of are, are, are really fundamental to what, what it is that we're working with. And it's probably more than enough for most people. So yes, like you're right. Like there are some of the more esoteric aspects that I do try to bring into this. And, um, and I think that's because they are full of mystery and they are, they are full of potential and the, and the power to wade through those murky waters and, and to go deep into this space. Oh yeah. my God, like who knows where we could take this. Right. Um, so I do get frustrated. I get frustrated with like the, the spinning of the wheels, the regurgitating of old ideas, the reducing it down to quirks and caricatures and foibles. Like it's funny. Um, it's endearing. We can laugh and roll our eyes and pinch our nose. But I kind of like this idea of like, what's it going to take to bite through my bottom lip? Like how hard can I make this? And how, how, honest can we be and in this you know this next book that i have Brene brown wrote the ford and one of the things that she wrote in there was what she respects about my work is that it's unapologetically nuanced that it's 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 difficult like i don't make it easy for people and um and i do i actually do i want to right so my mom will read it and understand it but i'm also not gonna skip over the holy ideas in case yeah. my mom's like I don't understand what an unobstructed view of reality or psycho catalyzer is. And it's like, well, let me help you. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think. Yeah. I, well, I can't wait until the book comes out mm -hmm. and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to, to what it starts um, excavating for people as they dig into it and mm -hmm. um, do all of that. What, what space do you think, you've had to be in, in order to synthesize your knowledge and be able to share that. 
how long did this book take you to write? Is this all your years basically of studying to kind of just focus in on this area and just dive deep and create the more, what's the word I'm looking for? Available wording, the, you know, mm. does that mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I, so maybe like in terms of process, let me say this. Um, so number one, like I'm not a good writer actually. Like, and that's obvious if you look at, my Instagram captions or my Twitter feed. It's like, swear to God, man, every, every one of them, Felina's like, Oh, you forgot an S there. Or that's, <laughs> I, I just like, I am, I am the king of typos. Like I am pretty good at writing like 180 word sentences. Um, so I appreciate my editors because oh, say your editors must love you. <laughs> oh boy. They, I love them because they make <laughs> me sound more articulate than I actually, actually am. So writing is hard for me and, and it's really hard for me. So actually like, I generally don't like throw around like words like prayer. Um, I opt of course more for mindfulness meditation and contemplative practice, but I will say that writing is a kind of prayer for me because it's like, I'm really <laughs> reaching and searching and hoping <laughs> for something. But I'll also say this because I'm, because I'm, I have a job because we run this little nonprofit. I'm not a writer. Like, and so it's not like I write to get paid. It's like, I write when I actually feel like I've ingested and metabolized and internalized something that I can honestly then confess. Like here's what I struggled through to get to this point. And if the struggle and the confession can help you not have to bump around on the bottom of life, like I did to get there. Fabulous. Like, let's just kind of help each other. And so I think that's also what I'm trying to do in my work is like share what I've, what I've actually come to understand, share what is truthfully and accurately and appropriately something I've owned. And, and so the bummer for me is there's a lot I'd like to say, actually, there's a lot more that I'd like to, to write and put out there in the world, but I'm like, no, I have to deal with it myself. Like I have to actually like, go there and fight this out inside and and suffer the ego humiliations of that too mm. um so like this whole notion like this idea of the enneagram of belonging it's like well on one hand yes i understand there is a fundamental human yearning and need to belong to each other like but i also understand like part of why we can't is because we don't allow the whole of who we are to belong to ourselves and that's always been like my struggle and so for me, like working on this Enneagram of belonging was how do I look through the lens of the Enneagram? How do I take these four basic Enneagons and actually let those be the support, actually let those sort of be the, the, the mile markers on the map to sort of get back there. And what sucked was it was painful and humiliating and devastating to even tackle that having the self delusion that I had actually thought I had done some of that work already. It's like, no, when I sit down and, really fight it out with these ideas, they just keep showing me more and more of the unresolved aspects of myself that have to be brought forward. So, I mean, I, I know my eight wholeness is coming out here, but it's like, it is a battle. It is a fight for me to write and to put ideas out there. So, and I, and, and so I also think that, like, I also think maybe that's why they have kind of a durability because they're, they're fought for, like they're, mm -hmm. it's the fruit of struggle, I think, so. I think that because right now, so we're recording when we are all sent to quarantine for COVID-19. 
And when you're talking about that fight and that struggle, we're all at odds with this virus. We're not only trying to figure out distancing and physical distancing and well, what does that mean? And how do we keep ourselves safe? And what, and, and all of this inner turmoil that arises from just that alone. And then we are stuck at home battling our inner demons in ways that I think a lot of people have not had to do either ever or very few times in their life. Mm. What do you see happening? And I suppose I'd like it to be through an optimistic lens because that's how I operate mm. <laughs> with you. What, do you. what do you see happening once we're at the end of our rope, all of this time we're having to spend alone and really battle out our, our shit? Yeah. So here's the bummer. The bummer is we're, we're creating the new future right now with our routine or lack of routine. Like we're creating the future me mm -hmm. by staying up and watching all of Netflix or like burying my face in the terrible news and letting it wind up my dread. Um, we're creating the new me like by, by if I can sleep in and piss the whole day away or if I get up and actually make breakfast and make the decisions and like start it off right. So I actually am super curious to see if, if we're going to collectively go towards a better sense of who we can become in health or if we're actually going to go into like a real rut of like, man, we're just more apathetic and lethargic and we've acquiesced and given up. Um, my hope is that there's enough of us out there pressing each other towards the possibility that the new we will be a healthier, more reflective, mm -hmm. more resilient new we. And then that will actually be closer and we'll be more connected and like we'll actually affirm our need for each other. Right. A friend of mine was on a, on a, on a jog the other day in her neighborhood and she saw like, some little kids had taken chalk out and made, you know, on the sidewalk, the hopscotch grid, but then above it, they wrote, stay six feet apart, but closer than ever. And I just thought, mm -hmm. and that's, that's what we have to do. That's, that's where we're going to be. And so I hope, I hope when people can go outside again and go back to work again and go to a cinema or a bar again, um, that there'll be a different kind of closeness and a different kind of connection. And I hope, I hope to God that, you know, in real time as our brains are changing and it's like, and every surface is toxic and I can't mm. touch a doorknob or hit the button on my elevator in my condo building or whatever. I hope those things actually aren't changing us for the worse. I actually hope that for those of us who lack some self-preservation, maybe this is going to help us grow in some self-preservation. Yeah. Um, for those of us who kind of lack like this, the social drive to make connections um, and really belong, hopefully this is going to help those people realize, no, I actually need those connections and I need to belong better. But it's hard to guess, man. It's Yeah. Yeah. There's no way of it knowing. It doesn't seem like we're going to all come out on the other side of this better, but hope Yeah. So. Well, and not to mention, I think we went into this with, with in a climate of extreme fear and a very aggressive fear. That's just been the, at least the culture. I don't, you know, I can't speak for anywhere else, but in the United States, that's, that seems to be the general culture. So 
I, yeah, I, I, I would like to be super optimistic, but I see what you're saying in that we were, we're already coming into isolation in a culture of aggressive fear. Uh, so, so what does that mean for, for the individual? Uh, yeah, I, I was curious and, and, and I do believe, and I, and I, I think I had mentioned this to you that gravity, you and Felina's nonprofit, like, I feel like it truly needs to survive this because mm -hmm. I do believe that now more than ever, it is nonprofits like you guys that are, are going to help us move forward who mm. are going to help us to expand our understanding of ourselves and each other in in this very strange world mm -hmm. that that we're living in um mm. yeah i know i think that yeah that's a whole other conversation i suppose mm. you mentioned netflix and i have a question for you about netflix mm. have you watched ugly delicious Oh yeah, I see oh, a bunch of them. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Ugly Delicious. Obsessed oh, with man. it. And here's why. I, if there isn't a show right now on like on Netflix that really can pinpoint what it is to start defining and and in this case it's a culture but like defining a culture and what that means within community and within systems and within even religion i think that show is if you're willing to give it more than just you know the surface level this is about food and how food is moved it's about people and it mm. is about fighting for who mm. we are and so I, I, I had told Mike the other day, I said, I was like, babe, Dave Chang is like Chris. He's like you. Like, I feel like he, he's changing the game just by speaking the truth. And what does this mean for us? And you mm -hmm. see that he's working through all of this in his own time. Mm -hmm. And um, he's, he's like the food version of like Enneagram, Chris. I don't know. But um, <laughs> what within within our world of systems and structures and uh in the united states uh the evangelical kind of construct that we have that is really more of a political construct in my opinion that we all have we we all participate in in one way or another sometimes whether we realize it or not how does your work enable us to start moving and having less fear of the structure, less fear of the institution, and move into a true community of understanding one another without the barrier of other. Yeah. Um, so what's so funny is like, all right, so there's so much in that. And like David Chang, it's like, I love. I love a, a super successful chef with a, an incredibly nuanced sort of palette and a sophistication of his craft, who's still honest enough to say like, I love Domino's pizza. It's like, he's just <laughs> real. And like, I, I love that about him. And you're right. Like, I love that he 
reminds us that food is a story and food is our culture and food is how communities come together. It's like, it's not just like I eat this on a Tuesday because I love it. It's, this is how we prepare this as a family, as a community. Here's how we sit together. And I always say this, like, I I think I love sharing meals with folks and, and really being hospitable around the table because in all the great world religions, every metaphor for paradise is consistently a banquet. And Mm -hmm. I think when we do break bread together, when we do drink together and eat together, we're practicing for some existential beyond, like some Mm. sort of soul print that's in us all and we don't even realize it. And so I want to say this, like, I want to say that's why if you have kids at home, um, if you have roommate or partner, and while we're all kind of in lockdown, to still sit together and share a meal together is a spiritual practice. And it's the practice of remembering who we are in context of who we belong to. I think when you bring that back to, you know, ideas and notions of identity or ideas and notions of, of let's say, looking through the lens of the Enneagram as a tool to remember our mm-hmm. soul's creative purpose for being, it once again affirms that we can't do that in isolation, that we have to have each other as supports, as part of our continued becoming. And, uh, and so that's what I love about the table. And that's what I love about David Chang. And I actually love the honesty in that. I mean, he's, there's, there's something endearing about his um, kind of vulnerability and self-deprecating sense of humor and his just comfortability of being himself. And that's what I love. I think that's probably, I think the table's probably where most of us can be like that, can sit like that, can bring ourselves there. And so right now, like I said, I, I think the table is important also for our collective consciousness and our collective well-being. And that's why, man, if you're home alone, it's going to be impossible right now. How does the table play into true belonging in a world where membership in an institution can be so cold and mm. where there is this fear of leaving that which, you know, kind of made us? right? How does the Enneagram of belonging help us move towards a true belonging where we all have a place at the table? Yeah. So this is the bummer. Um, and maybe we've talked about this before, but um, in, this, in, in the new book, I, I actually sort of throw that old, that old notion of the conditions of belonging out there and kind of expose it for what it is, right? Because like your kids, like when your kids were born, they belong to you. That's what family really is. And it doesn't matter if they're beautiful or goofy looking or had all their fingers or toes or extra fingers and toes. They, nothing could have made them not belong. Like you're the mom, they're your baby. Like that's family. Sure. They grow up a little bit and then they have to learn how to behave. So probably don't cuss at school, probably look both ways when you cross the street, probably don't, you know, steal yeah. your siblings toys, whatever. Even if they misbehave, they still belong. And then when they get old enough to really kind of consider what spiritual tradition they may align with or political affiliation they may sort of have bias towards they might not worship like you they might not vote like you they may actually believe very differently than you do but they still belong so that's family belonging regardless of behavior regardless of belief the bummer with religion is you have to believe the right thing to get in the door and then you actually have to prove fidelity to belief through right behavior and then your belonging is conditional And that's worn out, man. And that's worn out because 
religious communities that metaphor themselves as a family are actually doing a disservice to what mm-hmm. we think family is yes. and what we think community and belonging is. So I, I think that's kind of, I would, I mean, I don't want to say like the urgent work of everyone, but I do think practicing radical inclusion for ourselves leads to the ability to include everyone else. And this is where belonging is also sort of seen in how, how society wounds itself. When I do not allow every aspect of myself to belong and I internalize that and I perfect it, then yes, I project it. And that's where we create the margins and that's where we push people to the edges. And that's where people are languaged and labeled as an othered. And that's, that's a bummer, you know? Yeah. I think that's what your work is until you can belong to yourself then you can't almost belong yeah. to each other in a way that is yeah. wholesome and loving and um, beneficial to the community. Yeah. What, um, yeah. What do you hope people get out of your new podcast and the book? Hmm. Well, I, I think with the book, um, like I said, I, I, I want to let the book be, a gift to the community out there of folks that are actually taking their work with the Enneagram seriously. And I want that book to really be a kind of um, like a compassionate guidebook to understanding the, the fundamentals of what it is that we're, we're working with here. Um, you know, I, 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 I've kind of described it like this, like, I guess like, could it be 12 years ago, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, Felina and I did the Camino de Santiago. We walked mm-hmm. 800 kilometers across Northern Spain to the Basque country. And, you know, every day you look for a place to eat and every day you look for a place to sleep. And so there's these monasteries and convents and albergues for the pilgrims. And you walk through every day, like a number of just gorgeous little Spanish villages, you know, some of them 40 people, some of them 340 people. But in every little village, there's always these gorgeous little cafes and these gorgeous little bars. And you can get a glass of wine and some tapas, but they all have this classic Spanish tortilla, right? This kind of three inch thick sort of potato omelet, egg omelet. And uh, I, I love it when it's prepared well, because it's just simple and it's perfect. And there's just something about it that's just smashing um so this year i've been trying to like make the perfect spanish tortilla and i think what surprised me at the very beginning was it's only four ingredients like potatoes eggs uh onion and olive oil that's Mm -hmm. it and when you actually you know cook those onions down none of those ingredients actually have much flavor Mm -hmm. um and so what you kind of learn when you start to make a spanish tortilla is it's about honoring and respecting the ingredients, knowing how to prepare them, knowing how to find the best. And then it's actually all about technique in, in cooking this dish. And if you have really bad technique or really bad ingredients, you can totally screw it up. Like there's a way to actually make this terrible. Um, I think that's the gift I'm trying to give to the, to the Enneagram community is, hey, there's four really simple ingredients to this whole personality thing. And if you don't understand, them or if you have bad techniques you're going to mess this up so let's just do something very beautiful and do something very let, let's offer a gift to each other with clarity around the very simple ingredients and i and i think that's hopefully what people take away from the book like oh this is a gift like this helps me understand what i'm working with and how to work with it 
the podcast, man, I, this first season on this podcast, I, I just chased down my teachers and I honestly wanted to get out of the way. Like there's very little commentary from me at all in these conversations. It's helping make them more accessible. It's helping for some people, maybe taking them off a pedestal and showing their human side. But it's also letting these folks just have con candid conversations about their own journeys and their own processes without having to teach Enneagram or talk about what's it like to be a one or a two or a three. It's just, I, I think it's hopefully going to be really fresh. And I, and I do hope um, this podcast will actually humanize this larger Enneagram community too, so that we're not, yes, we, we, we have to honor our teachers, but we're, we're not creating unnecessary distance between us and them. Mm. And, and I think you put the perfect words to, to what it is that, uh, what it is that you've, you've done with the work and that you've humanized it and made it to where we can understand and we can dig deeper and we can continue forward. So I'm very mm. grateful to you. You've put up with me for a very long time. No way. You're amazing. <laughs> Not I only mean, today, but for the last few years. So thank you for that. <laughs> no, I mean, you're amazing. Like you, you give me hope. Like you show me what it looks like for somebody to like slug away at the difficulty of, of, of living with the, the, the best of your humanity, what's misunderstood in it. And, you know, observing your own inner resistances that we are basically always our own worst enemy. Like, we don't have to do the things ourselves that we often do. And it's like, you actually show me how like this teaching actually does lead to freedom. It actually you're liberated. And like, that's the greatest evidence of any of these things is seeing it in someone's life. So right for you, actually. I really appreciate it that you did this, Chris, because mm. well, first of all, well, what you just said just really touched me. And now I'm feeling shit because I've been mm. home for three weeks and I've got shit to do. <laughs> so <laughs> mm. I'm very, I'm very grateful. 